I did get really great advice once from Jackie Oshro, a poet. She says she always tells her students that they don't need to go out of their way to make things abstract right. or ambivalent or right because reality, the literal, is already strange enough. Just depict it as clearly as you can as it is. Yeah. And it will be complicated and strange. Yeah, that's that's literally the best advice I've ever gotten. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about the poetry of Wisława Zimborska. This will be the first of two podcasts about her work. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just-for-fun writing prompt that will have you addressing your poem to a totally different kind of audience. The quote of the day comes from Wisława Zimborska's Nobel Prize lecture. I'd like to read a few selected excerpts from this. All sorts of torturers, dictators, fanatics, and demagogues struggling for power by way of a few loudly shouted slogans also enjoy their jobs, and they too perform their duties with inventive fervor. Well, yes, but they know. They know, and whatever they know is enough for them once and for all. They don't want to find out about anything else, since that might diminish their argument's force. And any knowledge that doesn't lead to new questions quickly dies out. It fails to maintain the temperature required for sustaining life. In the most extreme cases, cases well known from ancient and modern history, it even poses a lethal threat to society. This is why I value that little phrase, I don't know, so highly. It's small, but it flies on mighty wings. It expands our lives to include the spaces within us, as well as those outer expanses in which our tiny earth hangs suspended. If Isaac Newton had never said to himself, I don't know, the apples in his little orchard might have dropped to the ground like hailstones, and at the and at best he would have stooped to pick them up and gobble them with, with gusto. Had my compatriot, Marie Sladowska Curie, never said to herself, I don't know, she probably would have wound up teaching chemistry at some private high school for young ladies from good families, and would have ended her days performing this otherwise perfectly respectable job. But she kept on saying, I don't know, and these words led her, not just once but twice, to Stockholm where restless, questing spirits are occasionally rewarded with the Nobel Prize. Poets, if they're genuine, must also keep repeating, I don't know. Each poem marks an effort to answer this question, but as soon as the final period hits the page, the poet begins to hesitate, starts to realize that this particular answer was pure makeshift that's absolutely inadequate to boot. So the poet keeps on trying, and sooner or later the consecutive results of their self-dissatisfaction are clipped together with a giant paperclip by literary historians and called their oeuvre. And for more about the wonderful results that the phrase I don't know can get you in a poem, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. So, here I am with Claire Akebrand. Hi. And who are you, Claire? I am. (laughs) This is your cue to say author of. Yes, I am the author of The Field is Wide, which is a novel, and the poetry collection, What Was Left of the Stars. 
both available for purchase on Amazon. On yes. Amazon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Product placement. Or on the publisher's websites, Serpent Club Press or uh, Current Punked Press. Yes. Uh, we're talking about the poetry of Viswava Zimborska today. And I do believe it's pronounced Viswava. Really? Some of those L's are W's, and I think most of the V's are. Sorry, most of the W's are V's. Sheswav, Miwosh, and Viswava Zimborska, yeah. Been saying it wrong all these years. Yeah, I say it wrong all the time. Uh, we've both liked her poetry for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just dive right in with one of our favorite poems by her, and we'll talk about it as representative of her work. So this is the first poet that we're reading in this new class, writing poetry. And I want to make sure that we do kind of two things simultaneously in this in this discussion. I want to make sure that we're doing her own poems justice and talk about what makes them unique and uniquely great. But also I want to outline some fundamentals about poetry writing that all poets should keep in mind as they begin their apprenticeship. So do you have a especially favorite poem by her that you'd like to start the conversation with? Well, you asked me that a few minutes ago, and I do... My favorite poem of hers is Vietnam, but it's not necessarily representative of all, uh, the rest of her poems, so... It is slightly an outlier, so, we'll, and we, so we will get to that for sure, but what's your second favorite Zimborska poem in the first half? So I should also say that Claire and I are just going to cover the first half of this book, and then I and, and one of you listening will cover the second half of this book. So what would you say is your second favorite poem? <sighs> So, I do love this poem. Which poem? In Praise of My Sister. Okay, do you want to read it? Yes. And then you can just, yeah, enthuse about it, and we'll kind of try to praise what it's doing specifically, and then try to extrapolate any general lessons for writing poetry that we can from it. Okay. In Praise of My Sister. My sister doesn't write poems, and it's unlikely that she'll suddenly start writing poems. She takes after her mother, who didn't write poems, and also her father, who likewise didn't write poems. I feel safe beneath my sister's roof. My sister's husband would rather die than write poems. And even though this is starting to sound as repetitive as Peter Piper, the truth is none of my relatives write poems. My sister's desk drawers don't hold old poems, and her handbag doesn't hold new ones. When my sister asks me over for lunch, I know she doesn't want to read me her poems. Her soups are delicious without ulterior motives. Her coffee doesn't spill on manuscripts. There are many families in which nobody writes poems. But once it starts up, it's hard to quarantine. Sometimes poetry cascades down through the generations, creating fatal whirlpools where family love may founder. My sister has tackled oral prose with some success, but her entire written opus consists of postcards from vacations, whose text is only the same promise every year. When she gets back, she'll have so much, much, much to tell. Okay, so yeah, just tell us why you love this. Few of us who like or enjoy reading poetry know other people who enjoy reading it or writing it. Mm-hmm. It's it's rare. It's really rare. And we all have, we're all surrounded by family and friends who we admire to no end, who are completely separate from poetry. It's a poem about how insignificant poetry really is, but at the same time, the poem is what helps us understand that. So it's 
it's both arguing for and against poetry. So that's a powerful, really powerful tension. I think that's a great place to start because a lot of her poems argue with themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they contain this wonderful tension between a kind of widely held opinion or a universal opinion or general belief, mm -hmm. and then an individual's doubt about the validity of that widely held opinion or belief. Mm -hmm. One of the points she makes in her Nobel Prize lecture is that the phrase, I don't know, is like the most important phrase for a poet. Oh, curiosity is absolutely the most important thing in life. One of the most important things. It's, it's, a tr it's, it's an extreme privilege to have mysteries in life. And what about for poets? Why, is, why are mysteries important for the writing of a poem? When you write a poem and you're staring at that blank page, what does it look like for you to incorporate this advice of Zimborska's to embrace not knowing? I think it's an exercise in wandering. Did you say wandering or wondering? Wondering. It's not that you don't want answers. It's a beautiful thing when you come across an epiphany, and many poems have them. But I think if uh, you don't want to write a poem that just uh, offers facts or answers, that that kind of poem is impossible and not as interesting. Yeah, Frost says no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Mm. So if in order to surprise yourself as a writer, you have to address ideas and topics that you don't understand. Yeah, you have to follow a train of thought that you don't know where it will end up. You have no idea. Right. So you can imagine, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to read the mind of a stranger who has passed away, but you can imagine the thought process in writing this poem in praise of my sister. My sister doesn't write poems, and it's unlikely that she'll suddenly start writing poems. You know, you can imagine Zimborska beginning with those two lines and then asking herself, where is this meditation going to go? Mm. She has no idea. Yeah. You know, the question behind this poem is, why do some people write poems and other people don't? This is a question that Zimborska doesn't have the answer to. Mm. So she's walking one step at a time into the darkness, you know, into the unknown. Yeah. I don't know why I write poems and she doesn't. I don't know if it's good that I do and she doesn't. Maybe it's bad that I do. I don't know. And I don't know if thinking about it right now will get me to an answer. Yeah. And there is no answer at the end. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if the title came after, if maybe that was... One kind of answer, like, this is actually a poem in praise of my sister. Yeah, I love these postcards that, the, that she has at the end. There's something about silence, you know, I can't really describe this vacation that I'm having, but when I get back, I'll tell you all about it. You know, the promise of having so much more to tell. Mm. Maybe withholding speech or silence is somehow more appealing or attractive or important mm. than what we poets do. We try to, like, you know, get to the bottom of things, and we talk and talk and talk and talk. And some of my favorite poems are the kind that acknowledge that so often it's the silence that is more beautiful than the words. And I think some of the best poems know when to be silent and when not to be. So I'd like to put it as the first, like, this list that we're going to make is going to be in no particular order, but one of the first, one of the fundamental aspects of writing poetry is that you really should encourage yourself to write about what you don't know. So put this near the top of your list. Yeah. Embrace the unknown. Look at the poem as a vehicle for asking questions, not for pronouncing answers. Yes. 
just like setting out <laughs> to use the word journey but setting on a setting out on a journey without any kind of map without knowing the country at all you just take one step at a time yeah her her poems have this amazing quality of um feeling like spontaneous meditations and i'm certain that they were not maybe sometimes but i think it's a real skill to make it look easy well she has this very casual tone yes so she's tackling, I mean, she's a master of irony. She's tackling some of the most important questions, but in a way that's, that seems offhand and casual and ironic and nonchalant, mm-hmm. conspicuously nonchalant. That's a kind of unique trait of her own. I wouldn't say that that's an important requirement for all great poems. Right. It's kind of yeah. faux naivete. Mm-hmm. Not every poet needs that. It's just something that makes her her. Yeah. But I do think every poet needs to embrace the unknown mm-hmm. and needs to constantly say to him or herself, I don't know. What don't I know? Let's write a poem about that, what I don't know. Yeah. So, for example, I think this is partly what her poem, The Joy of Writing, is about. So I'll read this poem and then we'll talk about it. This is on page 109 of Map, The Joy of Writing. Why does this written dough bound through these written woods? For a drink of written water from a spring whose surface will Xerox her soft muzzle? Why does she lift her head? Does she hear something? Perched on four slim legs, borrowed from the truth, she pricks up her ears beneath my fingertips. Silence. This word also rustles across the page and parts the boughs that have sprouted from the word woods. Lying in wait, set to pounce on the blank page, are letters up to no good. Clutches of causes so subordinate, they'll never let her get away. Each drop of ink contains a fair supply of hunters, equipped with squinting eyes behind their sights, prepared to swarm the sloping pen at any moment, surround the doe, and slowly aim their guns. They forget that what's here isn't life. Other laws, black on white, obtain. The twinkling of an eye will take as long as I say, and will, if I wish, divide into tiny eternities, full of bullets stopped in mid-flight. Not a thing will ever happen unless I say so. Without my blessing, not a leaf will fall. Not a blade of grass will bend beneath the little hoof's full stop. So, to corroborate the first point we made, she begins this poem explicitly with questions. Why does this written dough bound through these written woods? Right? Mm. Why does she lift her head? Does she hear something? So here I have imagined a, a, a deer in the woods. Why is she the way that I have imagined her? Mm. Well, of course, that's a question that you don't immediately know the answer to. Why does the imagination work the way it does? Why is the vision in my mind this way and not some other way? So begin your poem. This is a great writing prompt. Begin your poem by asking yourself a question you don't know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to another point, clarity. Are we ever lost in a Zimborska poem? Do we ever not know what's being said, or to whom, or about what? Very rarely, and that's probably just from lazy reading. <laughs> what do people starting out as poets need to know about clarity in poetry, would you say? As a young poet, I was, you know, I, I would set out to write a poem, I'm like, okay, this has to sound different than regular speech. I have to change my mode. But you don't necessarily have to. Right. At all. It can be amazing. There's many styles, but you don't 
It's not a requirement. You can write amazing poems using a casual tone. Just speaking the way that you speak in normal life. Yes. Speaking the way that you speak to a friend, speaking the way that you speak to a spouse or in an email or in a letter. Yes. I do think um, it always looks, a successful poem in a casual tone always looks easier than it is. Always. Right. It takes it takes work to make it sound genuine. But I think, especially with a poem where you choose to go with a casual tone, you also have to, um, I think, choose heavier subjects. Not necessarily heavy as in you know, deep grief or tragedy, but it can't be like a casual subject. Well, you say that, but Zimborska has all kinds of casual subjects. My sister doesn't write poems. That's a casual subject. I see what you mean, but also not, because it is about familial love, you know what I mean? Well, she does have a wonderful way of making, of finding the... She insists on the magic of the ordinary. Yes. So she talks all the time about ordinary things, but makes them magic. Or maybe a more accurate way of saying it would be that she insists on the ordinary, the magicalness of the ordinariness of the ordinary, right? So <laughs> she's, I know it's kind of a convoluted phrase, but she's not looking for what's magic inside of the ordinary. She's insisting that the ordinary is already magic. Yes. Or somehow worthy of our amazement and awe. Yes. I remember as a young poetry student, I there was this idea that you have to bring out the extraordinary in the ordinary all the time. I don't know how it is now, but I feel like that was always a thing that came up. And she shows that you don't have to do it that way around. You can also show how the ordinary already has magic and mystery. Um, yeah, she'll write about chairs or teacups or tables or... Oh, yes. All you know of her I mean? objects take on this mythical weight, right? I mean, the bodybuilding poem is maybe a good example of this. I mean, a, a bodybuilder isn't, I guess, that ordinary. Oh, but I would never choose to write a poem about a bodybuilder. Yeah, so here it, it doesn't aspire to be anything more than a, an incredibly accurate and sharp description of this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Right, from scalp, so this is on page 86, from scalp to soul, all muscles in slow motion. His back alone has 20 different faces, for example. Um, on stage, he grapples with a grizzly bear, the deadlier for not really being there. You know, so she just gets us to look at things and she forces us to admit that they are extraordinary. Mm. And that, like this bodybuilder's back, all things have many faces in them. Right. So write about what you don't know, but also don't be afraid to just praise the ordinary for being itself. Yeah, exactly. Like, this uh, bodybuilder is worth noting because he's like this and this thing. She doesn't do that. She just describes him. As he is. But also clarity. I want to kind of circle back and dot some of those I's and cross some of those T's. We often think that the vaguer the poem, the more vague the poem, the better, because it will let people bring their own interpretations to it. It, it could be that we're under this impression that a poem is good when it offers the most potential interpretations, and therefore you need to keep things vague and kind of opaque and kind of secret. Mm-hmm. You don't want to actually say what you mean, because then people won't be able to interpret it in the way that they want to. Why is this a bad way to approach poetry? Why should you just say what you mean? Well, first of all, if you read Zimborska, it works really well for her. Her poems are full of statements. In a way, this is a tricky book to read for young poets, I think, because it does a lot of the things you're told not to do, like make statements. <laughs> Why shouldn't we keep things abstract? 
I think our thoughts are more interesting than we think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's somehow a cop out to hide behind vagueness and obscurity. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's harder to say what you mean and make it interesting. It's harder to be clear and interesting. Mm. It's slightly easier to be vague and opaque mm. and say, well, I'll just assume that there's something deep and profound here because it's vague and opaque. Yeah. You know what I mean? Slightly lazy way of writing. But if you start by saying, my sister does not write poetry, and ask yourself, well, why not? And why do I? And force yourself to ask questions that you don't know the answers to. That's harder. That's harder mental work. It is. So it's a it's a slight it's a slightly more courageous way of writing mm. to be clear and ask clear, open ended questions that you don't know the answer to. Right. And make the poem be the process of that asking, mm -hmm. as opposed to just put a bunch of vague, opaque abstractions on the page. I mean, another thing we could say is that I think also people approach poetry with a lot of song lyrics in mind. Mm. and think that there are more or less analogous art forms. Mm. Can we talk for 30 seconds about why you should forget everything you think you know about writing song lyrics you should forget when you start writing poems? Oh, yeah. Why? It's actually shocking how completely separate they are from each other, like two different species. Why? The music, that's, <laughs> that's a ginormous difference. If you're a writer of poetry, what do you have to do on the page that you don't have to do it as a lyricist. What certain expectations or obligations are you under? Well, you have no music in the background <laughs> to make meaning for you, so you have to make the words make the meaning. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. You have to say what you mean. You have, exactly. to make the, you have to make the words make the meaning. So you have to say something that means something. It's It sounds so obvious that it, you can maybe not hear it. Because yeah. it's like so obvious, you know? Yes. In a poem, you have to say something that means something. Hmm. In a song, you don't actually have to. If you're writing song lyrics, you don't actually have to say anything that means anything. You don't. Because it can all just be like part of the musical force of the song. These are I just, know. my voice is just another instrument in the song. And so the words, and of course, there are many different kinds of songs, and sometimes the words matter more than at other times. But if it's just words on a page, no music, you have to say something that means something. Yeah, and it's really interesting. And in songs, the way, I mean, obviously in poetry, songs, uh, words have a different sound qualities and, and their own music, but... Well, let's, let's read a poem that is a good example of saying something that means something. This is a prose poem on page 98 called Synopsis. I really like this poem. Job, sorely tired in both flesh and possessions, curses man's fate. It is great poetry. His friends arrive and, rending their garments, dissect Job's guilt before the Lord. Job cries out that he was righteous. Job does not know why the Lord smote him. Job does not want to talk to them. Job wants to talk to the Lord. The Lord God appears in a chariot of whirlwinds. Before him who had been cloven to the bone, he praises the work of his hands, the heavens, the seas, the earth, and the beasts thereon, especially Behemoth and Leviathan in particular, creatures of which the deity is justly proud. It is great poetry. Job listens. The Lord God beats around the bush, for the Lord God wishes to beat around the bush. Job therefore hastily prostrates himself before the Lord. Events now transpire in rapid succession. Job regains his donkeys and camels, his oxen and sheep twofold. Skin grows over his grinning skull. And Job goes along with it. Job agrees. Job does not want to ruin a masterpiece. Mm. <laughs> 
So. Well, before we go into the, this means something, just explain to people listening what elicits this mm, of satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, again, this casual tone, she takes an extremely serious and heavy Bible moment, right? And gives it this casual tone, this dry wit. Yeah, dry wit. That's good. And um, So understatement. What do we mean by dry wit? We, we mean understatement. She's not trying too hard to be beautiful or, mm-hmm. or profound. She's not flexing like the bodybuilder. She's not flexing every single poetic muscle in her oeuvre, you know? Mm. She's being very understated. She's being very gentle. Yeah, in fact, the understatement becomes part of the joke of the poem, even in the way she, you know, says that Job's curses to God were are great poetry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like rant, the ranting and raving, you know, or the or the anger or the you know spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling, as Wordsworth would say. <laughs> you know, the stereotypical version of what we think great poetry should be: this kind of giant swoon. I know, but I love that. It's like, this is great. It's great poetry. But at the same time, she chooses this really understated. Yeah. So to write great poetry, we'll add this to our list. You don't need these giant emotional swoons. You can, you can absolutely embrace a kind of less is more approach or embrace the lightness. She's a poet of lightness. I don't mean brightness. I mean a light touch. Yes. And it's, it's especially satisfying, I think, taking a heavy Bible story and simplifying it. I'm not saying simple, that she's reducing it in any way, but she is, in a way, giving it the minimalist approach. That's right. They're distilled. No, they're not simplified, but they're distilled into their kind of essential crystalline essences. A crystallized version of this that I could take in. But she arrives, but it's not just a summary. No, no. You know, she... She goes into this poem, okay, let me describe the Job story. Yeah, Job, this happens to Job, this happens to Job. And then she, you can tell that the very last sentence of this poem, he does not wish to ruin a masterpiece. Yes. It's a, it's a beautiful example of how her wanderings, wanderings. <laughs> well, and wanderings too, you know, like, yeah. let me just let my thoughts wander. I don't know where this poem will end up. You know, this is Frost's image of the ice on a hot, piece of ice on a hot stove. Hmm. He says that a poem should ride its own melting like a piece of ice on a hot stove. Yeah. Maybe it will go here. Maybe it will go there. I don't know. So she lets her mind wander. Yeah. And sometimes that leads to epiphany. Sometimes it leads to a great line at the end. He does not want to ruin a masterpiece. Oh, I mean, it's such a great insight into human nature. And the nature of divinity. You know, God, the, the last few books of Job is God kind of like defiantly asserting his exemption from explanation. He's above reproach or explanation. He does not need to defend himself in front of us mere mortals. You know, did you make the earth? Did you make Leviathan? Can you catch him with the hook? You know what I mean? All this stuff. Like, you don't get to question me. I made all this stuff. So Zimborska's wanderings and wonderings, her wading into the unknown has led her to this realization that why doesn't Job interrupt? Well, because he might not necessarily agree with the content of God's rant, but it sure is great poetry. And he doesn't want to ruin a masterpiece. Well, and plus, once things are going well for Job again, of course he's going to consider that the masterpiece, you know, compared to his curses before, which were great poetry to us. <laughs> you know what I mean? When it's happening to you, you prefer the positive masterpiece for yourself. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't interrupt when God is justifying himself, and he doesn't interrupt when God is... Giving him new land and new, new. I know, so it's like, oh, but family. now he doesn't want it to interrupt <laughs> the masterpiece. So this is a poem that means something. You know, it doesn't. 
it's not nonsense and it's not really up it's it's not really a Rorschach blot that lets readers interpret it however they want mm-hmm. you know what I mean I think that's another common misconception of poetry that poetry is just verbal Rorschach blots and it means whatever the reader wants it to mean right not, not really and I mean, like, that's only rarely the case and if the images are beautiful enough then it's all good right no that's lazy that's another lazy way of writing you have to say something that means something Not the entire time. I, there are poems that are just all images, and then there's this one, like, there's this one statement that really kind of explodes in the poem. That's not an exemption to what we're saying. No. That, that still means something. Right. I know. I'm saying, like, you don't have to have, make statements throughout the entire poem. But then she also knows when to let images speak for themselves. I think she does know when to show instead of tell. Well, let's talk about images. That's another important aspect of her poems. Quickly, 10-second summary here. So, write about what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Be clear. Make sure that the subject is clear, the speaker is clear, the setting is clear, the language is clear. Say something that matters, that is meaningful. Um, you can embrace the ordinariness of the ordinary and turn that into poetry. Yeah, It's a wonderful burden to be relieved of the burden of wisdom. You don't have to be wise. I mean, I think this Job poem does contain wisdom, hard-earned wisdom, but mm-hmm. the bodybuilder poem doesn't necessarily. You can you can just observe the world keenly. Maybe keen observation is wisdom. It is, yeah. Hey, that was pretty good. Bit of wisdom there. Yeah. <laughs> If I do say something like that. But you know what I mean. Uh, you don't have to be the wisest person in the world to write the greatest poems. You, you just need to look carefully mm-hmm. and describe clearly. Yeah. Yeah, but let's talk about images. Let's find an imagey poem. I like this monkey poem. Yeah, that's good. Okay, let me read this monkey poem and we'll, we'll, we'll see how it does the things that we've listed so far. This is called The Monkey. It's on page 59. Evicted from the garden long before the humans, he had such infectious eyes that just one glance around old paradise made even angels' hearts feel sad and sore. Emotions hitherto unknown to them. Without a chance to say I disagree, he had to launch his earthly pedigree. Today, still nimble, he retains his charm with a primeval E after the M. Worshipped in Egypt, Pleiades of fleas, spangling his sacred and silvery mane, he'd sit and listen in arc-silent peace. What do you want, a life that never ends? He'd turn his ruddy rump as if to say such life He neither bans nor recommends. In Europe, they deprived him of a soul, but they forgot to take his hands away. There was a painter monk who dared portray a saint with palms so thin they could be Simeon. The holy woman prayed for heaven's favor as if she waited for a nut to fall, warm as a newborn, with an old man's tremor. Imported to king's courts across the seas, he whined while swinging on his golden chain dressed in the garish coat of a marquis, prophet of doom. The court is laughing? Please. Considered edible in China, he makes boiled or roasted faces when laid upon a salver. Ironic as a gem set in sham gold, his brain is famous for its subtle flavor, though it's no good for trickier endeavors, for instance, thinking up gunpowder. In fables, lonely, not sure what to do, He fills up mirrors with his indiscreet self-mockery. A lesson for us, too. The poor relation who knows all about us, though we don't greet each other when we meet. 
I think this poem does really wonderfully everything we've talked about, plus another thing I wanted to get into. Images. We were on the topic of images. I mean, how great is Pleiades of Fleas? Yeah, that's actually one thing I meant to say earlier, and I wasn't really quite able to articulate it, but we were talking about the ordinary versus extraordinary, and I think often she she makes the extraordinary ordinary. For example? Pleiades of Fleas. The Pleiades is extraordinary, but she makes it, yeah, an ordinary one. Fleas. What's more ordinary than fleas? Right. There's always this sense of uh, taking things down a notch, like yeah, um, yeah, yeah, leveling things out. Well, that's what I yeah. That's that's related to the observation I made earlier about how often there's this kind of universally accepted opinion about something, mm-hmm. and most of her poems contain this wonderful tension in which they both express that opinion but also war against it. Mm. So embodied in one speaker is the kind of profession of this opinion, but also the doubt about it too. You know, like the, I mean, the Hitler poem, which we won't talk about. You know, like everyone thinks Hitler is evil, but he was a kid too. Yes. So that's what I'm saying. Yes. She's always warring against popular opinion. Yes. Yeah. There's always a sense that she is smirking on the side. Well, we should add that to our list. Great poems very often war against popular opinion. Yes. Why do you think that is? I think it's one of the, possibly one of the great purposes of poetry is to resist conventionality. Yeah. Because that can often turn into kind of numbness or lazy thinking or an inability to to be curious. That's right. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, the monk, So the monkey poem has great images. It starts with the ordinary, let's write a poem about a monkey, you know? This is a great writing poem. Like, pick an animal, just an animal, and write a poem about it. You know, let's write a poem about a monkey. Oh, it's when I was taking a, a poetry workshop from Jackie Oshro at the University of Utah. She, as an assignment, had us all go to the zoo mm. and pick an animal and right. write a poem about it. Yeah, that's great. It was so cool. I honestly wrote one of my favorite poems with yeah. that exercise. This was what Rilke would do. I think she got that from Rilke. He would go in Paris to the the zoo, and he wrote his famous panther poem, and the flamingo, and the gazelle, and stuff. I encourage you to do that. I think, yeah, that's a great great example. So, start with the ordinary. Also, make sense. There's Mm. there's no sentence in this poem that is incomprehensible. Yeah. She doesn't think, hmm, I wonder what punctuation I can eliminate. Yeah, there's, there's rarely a good reason to not just punctuate normally as if it was prose. Use a period at the end of a sentence. Use commas as normal. Use question marks. And honestly, both are absurd. Punctuation versus none. But yeah, you but might it, as well do the thing that's clearer to readers. If, if you go out of your way to be weird with punctuation, then people are going to notice that weirdness and they're going to smell posturing yeah, and pretension. You know yeah. what I mean? So just be normal with punctuation. So the poem has great images. It makes sense. It starts with the ordinary. How is this poem an example of not knowing, embracing what we don't know. Well, I want to add a kind of related item to our list here. I love how in poem after poem, Zimborska is a master of pushing thoughts farther and farther and farther. Yeah. You know, she'll get two stanzas into a poem and arrive at a place that I would be thrilled to have arrived at. Oh, yeah. And then she'll add a third stanza and a fourth stanza and a fifth stanza, <laughs> by which I mean a third thought and a fourth thought and a fifth thought. Her brain is kind of like, it, it, there's no end to the thought process in, in the greatest Zimborska poems. She's like, can I push that thought farther? Can mm-hmm. I push it farther again? Well, what if that? And then based on that, what if that? 
Yeah. You know, I'll read an example of this. I mean, there might be better examples of this later on in the book, in the second half of the book. But this, you know, for the time being is a good enough example. It's the poem called Born. It's on page 122. I just want you to notice how the thought keeps growing and keeps being pushed farther and farther and farther. So she never really settles. Born. So this is his mother. This small woman, the gray-eyed procreator. The boat in which years ago he sailed to shore. The boat from which he stepped into the world, into uneternity. Genetrix of the man with whom I leapt through fire. So this is she, the only one who didn't take him finished and complete. She herself pulled him into the skin I know, bound him to the bones that are hidden from me. She herself raised the gray eyes that he raised to me. So this is she, his alpha. Why has he shown her to me? Born. So he was born, too. Born like everyone else, like me, who will die. The son of an actual woman. A new arrival from the body's depths. A voyager to Omega. Subject to his own absence on every front at any moment. He hits his head against a wall that won't give way forever. His movements dodge and parry the universal verdict. I realized that his journey was already halfway over. But he didn't tell me that. No. This is my mother, was all he said. Right, so it's like, this is his mom. Oh, this is the... Oh, this is her. This is the boat from which he stepped into the world. The poem keeps adding new observations about what it means to bring a new life into the world. She is the only one that didn't take him finished and complete because she watched him from, you know, a few cells. She felt him from a few cells growing. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a mother? She was his alpha, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, meeting, meeting her is proof that he was born. You know, like me, that he didn't just spring into existence as is. Mm. Which which must mean, therefore, that he will die. Like me. Right? So one thought leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And in the monkey poem, this happens too. Right? So you could just write a poem about a monkey and describe the monkey. It's like, what was the monkey doing in the Garden of Eden? That's one stanza. What was the monkey doing in ancient Egypt? That's another stanza. And then in medieval Europe, and then in China, they have this different opinion about monkeys. And then nowadays, you know, the thought is just such a, what's the opposite of lazy? It's such an unlazy thought process. How far can I push this thought? There's this, yeah, really exhilarating, exciting restlessness in her poems. She's never satisfied with like, no, there's got to be more to that. There's more to this thought, yeah. Yeah. And uh, at the end, again, we have this kind of sense of things being leveled out, of things coming to an equal kind of level, the monkey and the speaker. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's a really touching moment. It's funny, but it's also really moving, I think. We don't greet each other when we meet, right? Yeah. There's kind of shame on both sides of this relationship. Yeah, but also like family, but not anymore. (laughs) Right. A long-lost family member kind of thing. Right. That we've stopped saying hello to. Yeah. Yeah, her poems are so deeply and effortlessly philosophical. I'm saying seemingly effortless. 
Yeah, seemingly effortless, but also we should qualify the philosophical. I mean, they just ask important questions. You don't have to be a philosophy major oh, to come right. up with this stuff, you know, or to understand them. Right. They just ask important questions. Yeah. In fact, that leads me to another thing maybe we should get into before we close here, which is that so many of these poems, most of them maybe, most of these poems address universal topics and questions. Yeah. And I want to stress the universal in that sentence. That they're not just about my private memory or my private emotion. Mm. She wants to write a poem that is about all humans at all times. She wants to write a poem that is about the human condition. Yes, and which is why a poem like In Praise of My Sister, it works really well because it also has that mythical quality to it or um, the sense that it's everybody's sister and not specifically hers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and even if it is just specifically hers, she uses that to ask universal questions, like why do some people write poetry and others don't? Mm -hmm. Right, and what's... What is the purpose of language? Yes. What are the ways in which we use language, and why do some people use language one way and not another? And which is superior, and maybe none is. (laughs) Maybe none isn't, and maybe certainly mine isn't. Mm -hmm. I should be the first to admit that. Yeah. So, I don't know where we are on our list, number seven or eight, probably by now. Do not settle for the poem that is just about your private little emotion or memory or event or relationship. Yeah. To write a poem that matters or that lasts, it has to be a poem that is about humanity. Mm-hmm. And there are many different ways to do this, and we'll be considering many of them throughout this semester. And even inside of one oeuvre, you know, even inside the, the, book, the work of Zimborska, there are many different ways to do this. I love the way that she does this in Notes from a Non-Existent Himalayan Expedition. This is page 48. I'll quickly read this poem. So these are the Himalayas, mountains racing to the moon, the moment of their start recorded on the startling, ripped canvas of the sky, holes punched in a desert of clouds, thrust into nothing, echo, a white mute, quiet. Yeti, down there we've got Wednesday, bread, and alphabets. Two times two is four. Roses are red there, and violets are blue. Yeti, crime is not all we're up to down there. Yeti, not every sentence there means death. We've inherited hope, the gift of forgetting. You'll see how we give birth among the ruins. Yeti, we've got Shakespeare there. Yeti, we play solitaire and violin. At nightfall, we turn lights on, Yeti. Up here, it's neither moon nor earth. Tears freeze. Oh, Yeti, semi-moon man, turn back, think again. I called this to the Yeti inside four walls of avalanche, stomping my feet for warmth on the everlasting snow. It's such a great poem, right? <sighs> that poem's sounding so much better read aloud by you than when I was reading it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> what makes it so great? Ah. Uh... Again, I think one of my favorite things about her poems is that she does that thing where she levels things out. So we have the the grandeur of the Himalayas. We have Yeti, you know, exotic, um, otherworldly yeah. creature, and her, and Wednesday, and... <laughs> we have Wednesday, you know, it's like this like, miracle. Like, can you believe it? I know. She clearly went out of her way to pick the most ordinary thing. Yeah. Wednesday, and not bread. even Tuesday. <laughs> and after Wednesday, she says, bread. We have bread. I know. The second most ordinary thing in the universe. And there, there's something really... Uh, 
what's the word? Validating isn't exciting enough, but sublime. I mean, and the the line we have Shakespeare just brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> Shakespeare, if you are going to defend your species against another species, it's like yeah, push Shakespeare to the front of that list. We have Shakespeare, you know. We we're not we're not totally worthless. Yes, it's not all. We, there is crime. And I love how she kind of admits that. Yeah, there is crime, but it's not all crime. We have Shakespeare. And this is coming from a woman who, you know, this is like a few, a handful of years after World War II. Not every sentence is death. Yeah, that's right. 1957. I mean, the book is published in 1957, so a decade after the war. Uh, yeah, she's living. Not to mention Poland living. is occupied, you know, by the Soviets, so. Not every sentence, sentence is death. Some sentences are Shakespeare. Oh my goodness, it's so good. And it's, I love this idea of talking to a Yeti. <laughs> I know. And I, I just love what she does with it. Like, she wants to write a poem. This is the point I was making. She knows that a great poem has to be about the human race, not just about her own private little life. Mm -hmm. It can be about that, too. And often great poems start in a private little life. Yeah. But, you know, with Wednesdays and bread. But it has to be about the species. It has to be about humanity. It has to be universal that way. So I think it's a great way to pitch that, like, describe your species to another species. Mm. What is a human? Well, yeah, there's crime and yeah, there's death, but there's Shakespeare and there's bread and there's all this wonderful stuff, you know? <laughs> bread. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Uh, and I also love how the end is this wonderful, hopeful endeavor to kind of defend your species or to boast about it in front of a Yeti, but... The Yeti never answers. I know the Yeti is mute. Are we even? Are, is, she, is it even listening? Yeah. Can it even hear the speaker? You know, so who will this utterance be heard by? Right, in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by snow. An and snow is this image. I mean, isn't it the sort of the metaphor for silence? Right. And here she is defending language with language, and <laughs> to maybe a, a languageless thing. Yeah, it's such a great poem. It is, and I wanted to say too when you were saying. Um, the poem can't just be about your private life. I think there is a way to write specifically about your specific experience and private life, but it, the, the key point is it can't be so private that people don't find a way in. They have to be able to... Yeah, it can't remain private. Right. It has to give access to the public. It, it has to be understandable to people outside of that experience. I say that I'm a very narcissistic reader, and I don't really like poems that aren't about me. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a hyperbolic, it's slightly as Zimborska-esque <laughs> way. It's comedic and hyperbolic, which she does both of very well. Mm. It's a hyperbolic and comedic way to make a true point. Not all poems, I mean, only the poems that I write about my life are about me. So how could I expect a poem by Keats to be about me? But Keats is reaching through the void. He's collapsing time and space. He's transcending death. He's talking to me about me hmm. because I'm a human and he's talking about the human condition and yeah. all great poems must do this. Yeah. And there are a million ways to do this, but they must do it in some, in some way. Yeah. Your favorite Zimborska poem is Vietnam. Do you want to read it and talk about why? And then we'll close here. Yes. And as I was rereading this collection, I wasn't sure if I was going to have the same feeling still about this poem because sometimes over the course of many years, your feelings change as you get older about poems, but yeah, still my favorite, so. Vietnam. Woman, what's your name? <laughs> I'm probably going to cry. That's okay if you cry. No. Oh. 
Vietnam. Woman, what's your name? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't want to read it. Okay. It's in the voice of a woman. You know, it's important. Yes. Woman, what's your name? I don't know. How old are you? Where are you from? I don't know. Why did you dig that burrow? I don't know. How long have you been hiding? I don't know. Why did you bite my finger? I don't know. Don't you know that we won't hurt you? I don't know. Whose side are you on? I don't know. This is war. You've got to choose. I don't know. Does your village still exist? I don't know. Are those your children? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Here, are you going to cut this out? <laughs> Probably not. Oh. Oh, it gets me every time. What gets you? And you know what? To be fair, this this poem really moved me even before I had kids. So it's not like a poem that you have to that you can only appreciate if you have like you know, right? Motherly feelings. Well, what gets you? First of all, it is so it's so straightforward. They're very spe specific questions, and the answer is I don't know. I don't know. Just like in life, there's so many things we don't know. It literally becomes her credo, her poetic credo. I don't Ex know. I don't know. You know, she's kind of explicitly embracing that here. Exactly. And which she celebrates in all her poems. But then I feel like in this poem, she's making the argument that sometimes we know a thing like completely for certain. There There's are, no doubt. There might be one or two things, or there might be one thing, you know, that maybe is, is, the, is the thrust of this poem that you don't even know whose side you're on. You don't know what happened to your village, you don't know anything. You don't know anything, but you do know one thing. Mm -hmm. Are these your children? Yes. You know, no hesitation. End of poem. I know. I know. I, I always go about celebrating the mysteries of life, but there are things that, you know, nothing, nothing can change your conviction or your knowledge about those things, like familial love. And she probably earns this expression of absolute confidence in familial love by preceding it with 10 I don't knows. So she doesn't burst in right away. And the first line of the poem isn't, I know these are my children. You know, my children are the most important thing to me. You know, mm -hmm. you can't start a poem that way. I mean, I shouldn't say you can't, you know, you, you can defy the rules and maybe you can, but she, she builds this foundation of uncertainty of not knowing so that the final act of knowing can be all that more authoritative and stark and profound. I know. And just even just plot-wise, if you could say a poem has a plot, I, lo I just love what it says about the bravery or, mm. or courage mm -hmm. of mothers specifically. Yeah. It's almost as if it's not even a choice. It's just built in. Right. And everything else can dissolve. Oh, yeah. Um, that is irreducible. That is indissolvable. It's a kind of one-off poem. You know what I mean? I mean, this is... Many of her poems are imitatable, I suppose, but maybe not this one. She kind of invented invented a form that it could only exist for one poem. Yeah, you can't do that she again. She did it. She perfected it and then got lucky. Yeah, the way it stands out mm. from her other mode. I should say about getting lucky, I like what you said earlier about how the wandering and the wondering might lead her into dead ends. Mm. Of course, it, it's led her into many epiphanies, which is why she's got a book of great poems and why she won the Nobel Prize, but I'm sure it led her into many, many more dead ends. In fact, she was once asked by an interviewer why she had so few published poems. I mean, this this book 
isn't that long. I mean, it kind of looks thick. It's 400 and something pages, 430 pages. Over many decades. But over dec- over over a whole lifetime, she lived a long life. So to produce 430 pages of poetry, sh- small poems, short poems, over many decades, uh, quantity-wise isn't that much. She was once asked by an interviewer, why, why do you have so few published poems? And her answer was, because I have a trash can in my house. <laughs> it's just like her in a nutshell. Funny, <laughs> instantly funny, instantly wise, instantly self-deprecating. Yeah, can't help but love that tone. She advertises in that answer the fact that she's written many more failed poems than she has written successful poems and isn't afraid to jettison failed poems. She just will fill garbage cans after garbage, you know. And some of us might benefit from having more garbages. <laughs> I think No, this is right. I mean, this like how to write poetry Get a garbage bag, because you're going to fill it. Get many garbage bags, because you're going to fill them. I don't know if everyone's like this, but at least with me, when I create something new, I'm like, oh, this is this is probably really good. I should immediately make it public. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, everybody needs to work against that impulse. I mean, I think we all have that impulse to, to some degree, but yeah, we should all fight against it. Well, especially because of social media, we immediately think, okay, this is postable. Right. And of course, all our friends will say, you are a genius. This is great. But that this is not trustworthy advice. No. This is not trustworthy feedback. Right. So let's summarize how to write poetry according to Wisława Zimborska. In no particular order, I don't want to assert any kind of hierarchy here. Start with the ordinary or celebrate the amazingness of the ordinary. Yep. Be clear and make sense. Mm-hmm. Let me rephrase that. Have the courage to make sense. Right. <laughs> in, in a poem. You know what I mean? Yes. Don't hide behind the safety blanket of vagueness and abstraction and Rorschach blotness. I'm talking to <laughs> myself mostly. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, I submit poems for in my own workshop group, and I often get feedback like, I don't know what's going on. And, and then I say, like, oh, of course, they don't know what's going on because I didn't make it clear. Yeah. As soon as I make it clear, the poem's twice as bad, twice as good. Yeah. Don't just hope that people will say, "Oh, it's so dreamlike." <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Or, well, the way I interpreted it was it's like, no, this isn't this isn't dealer's choice. You know, you don't really get. And of course, there are poems that work that way. So but only like three. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like most poems don't. I mean, there are many, many, many poems in which there's a kind of ambivalence, like. Is it A or B? Oh, yeah. But in those, we still only have a choice of A or B. It's not everyone reading a separate, totally new poem. The monkey poem is not about elephants. It's about monkeys. You can't just interpret that however you want. Yeah. I did get really great advice once from Jackie Oshro, a poet. She says she always tells her students that they don't need to go out of their way to make things abstract or... Ambivalent or... Right, because reality, the literal, is already strange enough. That's so great. In fact, it sounds like something that could be said in a class about Zimborska, you know? Mm -hmm. She's so grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. Isn't reality so strange? And history is strange and tragic. (laughs) It's so bizarre. And, you know, the Vietnam War, we don't need... It's so morally ambivalent and complicated. And strange, yeah. Just depict it as clearly as you can as it is. Yeah. And it will be complicated and strange. Yeah, that's that's literally the best advice I've ever gotten. So make sense, embrace the ordinary, write great images, don't write about what you know, 
Push your thinking further and then further and then further again. Speak about the universal, right? Don't just describe your own private life, but describe what is a human? What is the human condition? Mm-hmm. Don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't mean you have to write hilarious poems. You don't have to be funny, but not taking yourself too seriously is important in any situation, in right. any type of poem. Punctuate normally. <laughs> Unless you have an extremely good reason not to. I'm sure we're forgetting things that we've said, but that's, you know, rewind if you want a more comprehensive <laughs> review. <laughs> I just want to close with this little anecdote. Claire Cavanaugh wrote this essay about uh, Zimborska. Claire Cavanaugh is one of you know her translators, English translators, and got to know Zimborska throughout her life. And in an essay about Zimborska wrote this, Viswava hated small talk as much as she hated speeches, but she loved to talk as long as it wasn't too small or too serious. Adam Zagajewski, who is another Polish poet, thinks she thought up questions in advance whenever she invited friends over in case the conversation stalled. In hindsight, I realize he was right. Quote, what's your idea of hell? She asked this to a dinner party of, tr- of translators. And then, and then Claire Kavanaugh says, I think I said grading student papers. I should have said moving with books. Another question Zimborska would ask is, whose monument should be in every city in the world? Wow. That question had a so this is now Claire Kavanaugh again speaking. That question had a right answer, Louis Pasteur. Since how many of the people in each of those cities would be, wouldn't be alive without his discoveries? Another question Zimborska would ask: Have you ever had a prophetic dream? Right. I just love this little biographical detail of her where she hated small talk and would have this backup reservoir of important open-ended questions to ask dinner party guests. She doesn't know the answer to these questions. They're important questions. They're universal questions. They're slightly funny, maybe. These are such great questions to start a great poem on. (laughs) If we had friends, we could do that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to use them on each other. (laughs) Any last words? I always hate that question. I mean, yeah, I'll I'll use your hatred of that question as, a, as an excuse to say that, I mean, there's no, we, we come back to these poets, there's no such thing as reading, there's only rereading. So I say last words, but we'll be rereading her for the rest of our lives and seeing new things and appreciating new things and falling in love with new things. So you never really have to say goodbye. No, what I will take away from her mostly is this huge sense of curiosity. I'm going to try to be more curious about yeah. Every object, every person, every moment. And every grand question, you know, w- what is your idea of hell? Whose monument should be in every city in the world? You know, like, wow. That's a good question. It's a really good question. Who knows how many more good questions you could come up with? Here's a great writing prompt. Come up with a good question. Come up with an equally good question. Yeah. I might write another poem again. <laughs> Today's writing prompt is inspired by Zimborska's poem called Notes from a Non-Existent Himalayan Expedition, in which Zimborska addresses the Yeti. Like many of Zimborska's poems, this kind of surface layer irony leads directly into very important questions. So for this prompt, I want you to pick your own mythical creature. Don't be afraid to feel silly doing this. It could be Bigfoot, you know, Loch Ness. It could be a mermaid or a vampire. It could be a figure from Greek mythology like Medusa or the sirens, or the cyclops, and write a poem to them. Write a poem that addresses them. Write a poem in which you describe to them what humans are, and what humans do, and what humans want. 
I'm hoping that this will help you consider the human race in a totally new way. What is it about our species that you would want this mythical being to know? Who are we? And what do we want to convey to other beings? Start a free write. Embrace the not knowing. Embrace the phrase, I don't know. And be surprised at where this exercise takes you. And now for the poem of the day. Today I'm choosing a poem by the Russian poet Joseph Brodsky. He's a poet that Zimborska talks about with admiration in her Nobel lecture. And I'm also choosing this poem because it's a New Year's poem, and I'm recording this just a few days after New Year's. The title of this poem is 1st of January, 1965. I say it's a New Year's poem, but it is also a Christmas poem. 1st of January, 1965, by Joseph Brodsky, translated by George L. Klein. The wise men will unlearn your name. Above your head no star will flame. One weary sound will be the same, the hoarse roar of the gale. The shadows fall from your tired eyes as your lone bedside candle dies. For here the calendar breeds nights till stores of candles fail. What prompts this melancholy key? A long familiar melody. It sounds again, so let it be. Let it sound from this night. Let it sound in my hour of death as gratefulness of eyes and lips for that which sometimes makes us lift our gaze to the far sky. You glare in silence at the wall. Your stalking gapes. No gifts at all. It's clear that you are now too old to trust in good Saint Nick, that it's too late for miracles. But suddenly, lifting your eyes to heaven's light, you realize your life is a sheer gift. Okay, that's all for now. The next recording will be between me and one of you, or two of you, about more poems by Vislava Zimborska. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm-hmm.